Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All too often, the news is about disasters, wrongdoing, stuff that's going wrong. One of the guests on our early shows, Richard, you remember, said, problems scream Solutions Whisper. Yeah, that was David Bornstein of Solutions Journalism Network. So the question we're asking is, how can we nurture the positive side of human nature, which so often gets overlooked? We're never going to fix our democracy unless we start to rebuild some trust in each other. Time for a little consensus building, fostering convergence, Rob Fersh. We love ideas that surprise people. Have you been surprised by people from very different backgrounds and points of view getting together more than you'd expected? Absolutely. I've been surprised and pleased at the level of connection that people can create. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, this show is right up our alley. We're taking a look at a group that quietly connects people with different beliefs and backgrounds so they can work together and cooperate on a range of different policies. We're going to talk about process here and get into the weeds. I love it in the weeds. So some of this stuff might sound like small ball, but the ideas we'll discuss directly impact many millions of people. From raising the earned income tax credit to coming up with new standards of paid sick leave and finding ways to improve health care. Rob Fursh is our guest. He's president and founder of the Convergent Center for Policy Resolution. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? And thanks for joining us at our living room table. Thank you. Nice to be here. So let's get right into it, Rob. Um, like a number of folks we've interviewed on How Do We Fix It? You believe America is in a crisis right now, and we're polarized, we're divided, our democracy is not functioning well. So what is your group Convergence doing to repair the damage? Well, Convergence, which just turned 10, works to try to bring together people who can make a difference on big national policy issues, like health care, K-12 education, or incarceration. And these are people who might start off from very different ends of the political spectrum with very different ideas about some of these problems, right? Exactly. That's our goal. Our goal is to bring together as wide a table of diversity of views because we think that the product, if we get agreement, is going to be all the stronger. So how do you avoid fistfights or at least get people to, to talk to each other in a civilized way? Do you mean besides the drug injections we give them? <laughs> uh, 
You know, we build trust over time. We have an elaborate process, which I can simplify for you, which is we identify an issue, we interview a whole bunch of people, and then we frame it up so it's inviting to different people, and they begin to build trust in us as honest brokers. And while some enter the table initially with shoulders up and, you know, and with resistance, most of the time we're able to create a culture of collaboration where people get to see each other for who they really are. Yeah, I heard I heard from one participant in, in your gatherings that, that she didn't even want to look somebody in the eye at the beginning. Absolutely. Uh, most of the time it's not quite that bad, but we've had that. We literally had one recent project where I'm told that one participant, when he saw another participant's affiliation, actually hid the person's name badge, hoping he would disappear <laughs> in the process. That night they had dinner, and they, after a day of negotiations and discussions at our table, then another day to come, and they actually bonded over dinner and ended up taking a field visit together to look at the facilities of one of the people who thought they hated the other one. Rob, you've spent a lot of time in policy circles and in Washington. Tell us a little bit about that background, what you learned from it, and how it pushed you in the direction of founding Convergence. I think probably the most formative experiences were my experiences on Capitol Hill, where I worked both on the Senate side and the House side. On the Senate side in particular, working for Senator Pat Leahy, who's still there from Vermont, working closely with Bob Dole, who for many people was seen as a very you know, partisan Republican, and we worked together on nutrition issues and found a lot of common ground. And went to the House side to work for Leon Panetta, and the ranking Republican there was um, Bill Emerson, who was, I was told was a Reagan Republican, you'll never be out of work with him. And what I found was that there are people of great decency who want to solve problems, see the world differently, and that if we can get people to talk to each other, they can push each other's thinking higher and find solutions that are win-win solutions for the most part. We love ideas that surprise people. Have you been surprised by people from very different backgrounds and points of view getting together more than you'd expected? Absolutely. Uh, we had a project on K-12 through education. We've now spun off as an independent nonprofit. It's called Education Reimagined. One of the early participants was a director of a libertarian, well, she's a libertarian Republican foundation head out of the West Coast. And she came in very critical of teachers' unions and thought they were the problem. She had her own particular solution. She now calls her participation at our table one of the most transformative of her career. She's now in her 80s. And she's now gone on speaking engagements with the vice president of the National Education Association. And they have a lot of shared views now on education, and they still disagree day to day on a lot of stuff. But I've been surprised and pleased at the level of connection that people can create. Another project that you've worked on is something called Working Up, and it aims to see how we can help the fortunes of what you might call the working class or the working poor. And again, you brought in social justice activists on one side and people from Walmart, McDonald's and conservative think tanks on the other side. And I was really impressed that you really came up with some pretty specific stuff. There's some pretty specific proposals out of that. Yes, we did. We divided it into several different areas. Quality of work, what are the wages and conditions? Workforce development was another big area where a lot of the action actually turned out 
to occur in the private sector where some of these major companies made changes based upon the conversations they were in? And just to explain to listeners who don't know that little bit of jargon, that's when we find opportunities to get people better trained, to get better jobs or move up in their careers, usually outside of any kind of a college context. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. Upscaling their skills, but giving them opportunities, growth opportunities. So a lot of areas of common ground were found. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a few? Well, a number of them had to do with agreement that we needed to revise paid leave policies. We couldn't get specific agreement on which one, but the principle of that. The group agreed on the principle that if you work full time, you should not live in poverty. There was then a disagreement about how high to put the minimum wage, so we didn't agree on that, but the principle was there. It meant that people might support policies that would lift people out of poverty. And there were a series of other recommendations on assets development. You know, if you're working poor and you have a $500 car repair, it may put you out of business to get to your job, so there's a series of recommendations to increase assets. Well, how do you do that? There's a whole series of ideas people put out there for various savings accounts or rainy day funds and so on. Send a report if you go to our website, www.convergencepolicy.org, and go to Working Up, you'll find a series of detailed recommendations there. And one that really struck me, because it's come up on this show before, is to make a change in the earned income tax credit. I mean, this may seem really far in the weeds for a lot of people, but if you could increase that tax credit for lower income working people, it's the equivalent of getting a really big wage increase. So I was intrigued yeah. that, that something like that became a big focus of the study. Just yeah. to explain that, the earned income tax credit is where, as opposed to paying income tax, which, which most of us do, you get a tax credit from the federal government. You get money back. Yeah, a refundable tax credit. And for those of us who study welfare policy for years, it was a breakthrough in that you know welfare benefits themselves tend to be so low, people have trouble living on them. And if you're working, if you then your welfare benefits or your other supports go down each time you earn a dollar, it made it really tough for people to climb out of poverty. So here, the earned income tax credit might be a place where people who don't necessarily want to raise the minimum wage might support policies that says, okay, if you work full time, you shouldn't be in poverty. And if we're not going to have small employers have to raise the minimum wage to get you out, then we collectively, through the tax system, will make sure that people don't live in poverty who are working hard and as President Clinton used to say, playing by the rules. Orrin Cass, who's a Manhattan Institute scholar, was on the show before, and that's been a big focus of his push that we should be doing more to subsidize jobs. And if we, are, we do a better job of helping people make more money and move up in their jobs, we won't have to spend as much on subsidizing people who aren't working. Well, absolutely. I mean, the dignity of work is important to everybody, and there's work you know, goes well beyond just being an income source. So being a contributor, feeling like you are making your own way, feeling like you're doing something useful during the day that contributes to the economic well-being of your family is really important. It doesn't mean that those who stay at home and take care of kids and so on, that should be valued as well. But there's something really great about supporting people's ability to be in the workforce, be able to feel like they're earning money and contributing to their own well-being. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Rob Fersh, president and founder of the Convergent Center for Policy Resolution. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before getting back to our interview with Rob, first, Jim, a couple of recommendations. Here's mine. Novels by the... Texas writer Paulette Giles, News of the World and The Color of Lightning. She writes beautifully about the land and a time of history in North Texas when white settlers and homesteaders were at war with Native American tribes in the region. You learn the perspective of the Native peoples, the U.S. military in the region, and the farmstead families. They are Deeply moving and also great plots. So two books by Paulette Giles, who writes like Willa Cather. I was hoping you would mention Willa Cather, my favorite writer of the 20th century, just about, I think. So, you know, this is a very heavy topic today. So I thought I'd bring in something a little more fun and uplifting, especially for any of our listeners who've watched the great Ken Burns country music documentary series, wonderful history of of uh, this very American form of music. I've got two podcasts to re- recommend. The first is called Cocaine and Rhinestones, and it's by a guy named Tyler Coe, who's the son of David Allen Coe, one of the most talented and notorious of the so-called outlaw country stars back in the 70s. And it's all about the history of country music in great, great depth. He does what good podcasters do. He'll spend a whole episode on the evolution, the sound of the pedal steel guitar or an entire episode on a song, Ballad of Billy Joe. It's fascinating listening. And if you're interested in more contemporary music that the Ken Burns documentary doesn't quite get to, the great Texas singer-songwriter Robert Earl Keane, who you see briefly in Ken Burns' documentary, he's got a podcast called The 51st State, and it's about some of his favorite new country artists. He interviews them. You could hear some of their music, so that's a great way to find out what's happening in that field. And now back to our interview with Rob Fersh. Right at the top of the show, we mentioned this thought. How can we nurture the positive side of human nature? Any thoughts on that? On issue after issue, when we gather people around the table, we actually create a culture of collaboration that even people we find difficult in the interview process tend to want to be part of that. And the group becomes reinforcing of a culture of collaboration. It doesn't mean you uh, aren't opinionated. It doesn't mean you're not passionate. It doesn't mean you have to compromise your principles. But by and large, I think if you put people in a setting where there's ground rules about what's expected and the group then enforces it, people really prefer to be in that setting where they don't feel like they have to be on guard and they don't have to feel like they have to win every debate. And they actually love learning from each other. And frankly, that's a key. Learning new things, opening your mind to new things, expanding your worldviews is as important as conflict resolution. And oftentimes we only have to necessarily resolve the conflict 
by expanding the lens by which you see things, you can see new possibilities and allows you to move to common ground that's sort of fresh and inventing new answers that aren't necessarily just getting through old conflicts you've been having for years. At the top of the show, you said something about the idea that having that diversity of opinion also brings more information to the table. Just earlier today, Richard and I had a little disagreement about that famous Elizabeth Warren study that said that most bankruptcies are caused by medical costs. And then I was aware, because I look at a a different set of media often than Richard does. And and in this rare case, you were right. (laughs) In this very, very rare case, um, that that study's had a lot of pushback from economists and others. And so now we can inform each other because we have different perspectives. I'm really interested in the notion that the ideas, the policies that, that do wind up being recommended by Convergence, They're informed by that back and forth, that bigger set of information people bring to the table, and then a certain amount of winnowing that happens when the ideas maybe aren't as well supported or or aren't as practical get left behind. Yeah, we're a mini-convergence here. You are. I'm glad you guys are modeling this for your audience. (laughs) So I think that's right. First of all, convergence, just to be clear, is a neutral organization. We don't actually take positions. We want these stakeholders to come together across their differences and to own the answers. And for us to stay viable, we don't go on the record as if we favor any particular solutions, but we're thrilled when people find common ground and we'll help them move their ideas out into the world. So that's, that's a key distinction that we probably should have made more clear up top. So it's, it is the individual working group that comes up with the final policy suggestion. You're not a lobbying group or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, uh, you're a facilitator. We're facilitators, and we've kept that very pure, and we believe a couple things. One is that if the stakeholders themselves own the solutions, they're really going to be much more adamant and much more persuasive about it. And not only that, in our process, we really build deep relationships of trust amongst them. So they talk to each other differently afterward, whether it's about our report or future issues. You have to be able to answer the killer arguments of the other side. And usually it's someone has an aha moment that says, not so much, oh, I disagree, but I never thought of that. Now, let me give you a response. And now let's push each other's thinking higher. In other cases, there may just be a compromise. If they both agree, it's better than the status quo. Let's talk a little bit about your method. Because, you know, it's not just, okay, everybody play nice. You mentioned earlier that you do have certain ground rules and certain tools you use. How do these sessions start? And how do the, the moderators keep things on track? What are the ground rules? Well, the ground rules in many ways are like the Chatham House rules. Don't question each other's motivations. You know, it's said in the room, stays in the room, but certainly isn't attributable to others. You're mindful of other people's time. You make sure you have respect for differences. But So a certain amount of confidentiality. Totally. It's all off the record in the room. You're, you, know, you can talk to people about ideas or maybe talk to trusted others you need to bounce it off of. But you're not supposed to go back and report that so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. No tweeting. And, And there's no tweeting whatsoever. In fact, we ask people to turn their phones off. But it's not so much the ground rules that I would point to. It's more a matter of creating a whole level of trust amongst people who aren't used to talking to each other. You asked about the initial meeting. We don't ask people to indicate their positions. That's a disaster formula. We start out by asking people, why do you care about this issue? Let me tell you a quick story. When I first started a project on healthcare coverage, which is one of the projects that led me to found convergence, there were 48 million Americans who didn't have health insurance, pre-Obama, pre-Affordable Care Act. 
And we started to go around the room. We asked people why they were involved. It turned out some of the more progressive groups answered first, and they saw that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the dreaded Heritage Foundation was yet to speak. And they said, well, it's really important people have coverage and so on. Finally, we got two-thirds around the room, and this gentleman from Heritage Foundation, Stuart Butler, pipes up and says, well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I believe in universal health care coverage. You could have heard a pin drop. I mean, the liberals and even the single payers didn't talk about universal health care coverage. And Stuart went on to say, I probably favor some approaches that are more market-based than just government, but I think it's a tragedy people don't have health insurance. Well, that transformed the room. And by dinner time, I had a feeling that people agreed on the goals but disagreed on the means, and they were ripe for a conversation they had never had before. Yes, yeah, so... Some of your groups bring together major players from industry like McDonald's and Walmart to the table. What do you say to activists who accuse you of just giving them a chance to burnish their public image? So let me, let me tell you a story about this. We had on our economic mobility working out project a representative from Walmart and a person representing an employment law project. By her own description the attorney from the Employment Law Project, had spent a large part of her career, if you will, muckraking Walmart. So, of course, they're at the table together, and um, they became respectful friends. They began to exchange ideas, and each began to see each other differently. And, in fact, the person from Walmart would probably admit that a whole series of ideas that were generated in our process affected how they did business. The woman from the Employment Law Project had vowed she'd never go to Bentonville in her life because she was so angry with Walmart. Uh, Walmart is headquartered in Bentonville, Arkansas. Bentonville, Arkansas. So here's the upshot. We brought them together a year later to talk to our leadership council. And the woman from the Employment Law Center got up and said, you know, I came to this table skeptical. The one person I was going to watchdog was this woman from Walmart. But then I got to know Ellie, and then suddenly... They stood up and and they hugged each other. (laughs) And they talked about the mutual respect and how they could work together over time. And now that wonderful advocacy lawyer has been to Bentonville and there's there's a possibility for making changes. I'm not here to defend or attack Walmart in any way. I'm here to simply say that human beings, again, can find common ground to solve problems they agree on. And in this case, they found a lot of areas where they could work together to make the lives of the employees of Walmart better and the employees in a lot of places better. It's not uniform. There are bad actors out there. We don't necessarily try to involve everybody who we don't think operates in good faith. But for the most part, again, people agree on ends. They just disagree on means. Rob first, thank you for joining us on How Do We Fix It? My great pleasure. Thank you. The Convergence Center for Policy Resolution is one of a number of groups that's part of something called Bridge Alliance. I think there are more than 90 groups, and we've interviewed a bunch of them on our show. And the focus is on rebuilding and strengthening our democracy, bringing people of different points of view together. It's right at the core of what we're doing on How Do We Fix It. And what's really interesting about Convergence is that the way they bring together these people who really are from across the political spectrum, you know, you know, adamant labor leaders on one hand and people from like a Koch brothers founded group on the other. 
And people who might you might think would be very antagonistic, get them to talk, get them to be friends. And so that part alone is important. But the policies that come out of it are really interesting to me because they're not all grandiose, let's tear down the entire system and, and build something new. Some of them are fairly modest and fairly focused. And I think that there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for getting people who don't agree together, figuring out what policy. It's not just compromise. It's figuring out what policies really make sense well, that's across it. the board. It's, it's about figuring out what policies actually work right. and putting them into practice. But here's, here's the key, though, I think, is if, one, if you have a, a, a group that represents a wide political spectrum and one whole group really, really hates an idea, maybe they're onto something. You know what I mean? Maybe they've got a point that you should listen to, even if you adamantly think that's a good idea. Maybe we should, as a nation, and when looking for smart policies to move forward, look out for things that are deeply unpopular on one side or the other. Maybe there's some wisdom in that. And, and, if, and this is a classic conservative idea. Do little things. Take your time. Don't try to change everything at once. Then see what works. So listening to the people you normally tune out is smart. That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is a classic liberal idea, the belief that the government can do a good job, but that it's vitally important that if you're in favor of expanding a government program or getting the government to do more, that you make sure that it's actually putting something in place that is well run rather than just simply making a big slogan and saying we need to protect everybody on on this plan or that plan that doesn't really help if the plan itself is is poorly run and you see this in the history of education again and again these new ideas that come in they're implemented by various political entities and they turn out not to work very well It, it makes one cautious don't be so sure that your big shiny new idea is necessarily the best one is going to work. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. Providing discomfort for both sides. <laughs> <laughs> Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. Check us out on Patreon. If you really like what you're hearing, then please support us. Uh, you can go to the How Do We Fix It? on Patreon and, and subscribe. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.